Good morning, Olive Branch. It's great to see you guys, and uh, thank you for uh, just worshiping with us this morning. If, and um, for those of you who are, are anxious about your football games, I'll tell you the scores right now. I'm not just kidding. Um, glad you guys are with us, and we're, we're, we're ready to just worship the Lord in His Word and, and dive into this. We are in a series here at Olive Branch where we've been discussing idolatry of the heart, really challenging ourselves with this question of what are these empty promises that various idols of the heart give us? And the reason we do this is we lay aside a time every year where we want to focus in on community. We, we really believe that in a, in a church of three services, there's oftentimes you don't get to see everybody, and it can feel like there's just this mass around. So we say, hey, the best place for community is in a small group. The best place to find community is when you find a group of people who you're going to be around every week and connect with. And so that's what we do. And we've been focusing on the building into each other of abandoning idols for the sake of picking up what God has really called us to. Now we've addressed a whole bunch of different idols in, in small groups and in our, um, in our services. Everything from, from image and, and your beauty. We talked about that last week of appearance. We looked at uh, finances. We've looked at success. Success. We've looked at the idea of um, being accepted. We have looked at all kinds of stuff, guys. And basically, we can make all kinds of idols. We could probably stack box upon box upon box on this stage and name an idol. We haven't talked about family. We haven't talked about your workplace. We, there's all kinds of idols the human heart can create. As, uh, as one uh, theologian put it, the heart, the human heart is an idol factory making machine. It just, it just, it just bursts out idol. Sorry, it's an idol factory, not an idol factory making machine. That doesn't make any sense. But anyway, we're diving into this final piece here in these next two weeks to detail out one final thing. Okay, so we got all these idols. I haven't addressed yours. How do we deal with it? How do we overcome all the various idols that exist? in our hearts. There has to be a general, a, a general sense of how we can really hone in and deal with the idols of our hearts. And that's what we're going to start with this morning. And it begins with a conversation about valuable worship. What does this mean? Well, actually, we'll dive into that verse in a second. What, what, what it really made me think of is this conversation I had around my dinner table one time with my kids. And we were all sitting there, and my kids have the weirdest eating habits on earth. Your kids, any of you guys had young kids, or you had weird eating habits as a kid? Like, kids are picky. I don't get what happened. I was called the bunny boy or something like that. My mom called me her little bunny rabbit. I loved eating all the vegetables. I ate so many carrots. I was orange at one point. You know, I just loved vegetables. I got into this. And, and so when my kids look at vegetables like they're from an alien planet and they're going to strangle them as they swallow them. I don't understand that. They're like super picky. One of my kids won't eat um, literally just, they don't want condiments on their corn dog. He doesn't want any kind of ketchup or mustard or anything. He just eats the corn dog plain. I'm like, okay, that's cool. One of my kids doesn't like melted cheese. That's like a travesty. It's like, well, what are you thinking? It's like, everything's better with cheese on it. It's like against one of the major laws of food. And, and it's like, you, you have to put cheese on it if you can. But he, no, swears. Now, he'll eat pizza, and he'll eat mac and cheese, but he won't eat, like, melted cheese on your hamburger or just melted cheese. It's just like, he doesn't like cheese. It, it's so weird. My daughter won't eat, she won't eat white cheese sticks, but she'll eat orange cheese sticks. And you're like pickiness. And so one day I started looking at their eating habits and we were sitting there and I'm going, this is so weird. And by the way, this causes so much stress when you're trying to, when you're trying to order in a drive-thru at In-N-Out. It's just like, uh, which one of you don't like cheese? No pickles? Okay. You like, and you like, but no. Anyway, so they're sitting there and I'm starting to realize there's one thing all my children love. They will eat it all the time. They never have, they will never deny it, but they will eat it and eat it and eat it. And that's bread, bread, cake, muffins, 
bagels, pretzels. If it's made of bread, they will just pound it and ask for more. I want more bread. I'm like, you haven't eaten the rest of your stuff. Can I have some more bread? Can we make it out of bread? You know, it's like, can I have bread? And I'm just like, what in the world? So one day it just dawned on me. I'm like, you kids aren't exercising enough. All you're eating is bread. And I said, guys, don't you realize what you eat is what you're going to look like? (laughs) If all you eat is the fluffy stuff, it's going to make you fluffy. If all, so eat your vegetables and your, and your meat and you'll be gritty and narrow and lean just like that. And just like trying to get them in some kind of semblance of like, look guys, you got to change your diet. This isn't good. And they don't remember that. But it was kind of one of those realities. What you eat is what you're going to look like. And I've always found that kind of interesting, especially, but not necessarily true, but it is true in a relationship. How many guys have seen when you're out eating Two people who are in their 90s or something or 80s, and they've been married for a long, long time, you can tell. They come, they sit down. They have like this thing with each other. They just like talk to you. One of the couples I've seen was my favorite one. They sat down, and I swear, they must have had the worst day of their life just coming in there or something because they sat down. They looked at the menu like this. What do you want? I want, my, I want what I always get here. So they've always been here. Um, why do you always want to eat that? It's never good. It didn't taste good. And back and forth, they're bantering like they're arguing with each other. And then at the end of it, when they're all done, they get up, they're holding hands, and they walk out. And I'm just like, <laughs> that's what happens. You get so used to each other. It's who you are. You don't even, everybody else watching from the outside doesn't see it. When my dad lost my, my mom, I watched his personality radically change because so much of who he was was because of who my mom was. They had melded into each other. They had picked up each other's traits. And I think that's what happened with this couple sitting there. They picked up each other's little crotchety traits and didn't even realize it. And it was kind of fun to watch them from the distance bicker with each other. But the reality is, guys, the people that we love shape us. Even if you're single, the people that you love, your family will shape you. Your friends will shape you. The people that you're around will change the way that you act and how you behave. Because really the honest truth is that we as human beings are shapeable. We're moldable in ways that we don't even realize. And the Bible warns us this over and over again and actually tells us why this is the case. Why we can be shaped by other people. And it's because we're made in an image. It says here in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 through 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. They're an image. They're they're not the original. We're made to reflect God. And I guess the best way to put this is that you and we, we see this verse all the time, but a good way to put this is we're mirrors, not flashlights. We're literally, there's a big difference between these two. A flashlight, I can turn it on and shine it in your face. And it's coming from here. It creates its own light. It's its own ability to to produce and be something that it is. But this, however, this reflects light. Don't shine the light in my eyes. No, it's bright up here. You get to share. So the the reality is this, this will only reflect whatever is put in front of it. So I've always asked myself, what color is a mirror? You ever wondered that? Because it only reflects what's in front. It doesn't have a color, I guess. And it's like, it's blue, it's beige, it's me. Well, it, it can't produce light. When you shut the door and you turn the lights off in your, in your bathrooms, the mirror is not producing anything. It only reflects. We're an image. 
We're a reflection of God. We have this, this sense that we are not actually so solid in who we are that we produce who we are. We're reflecting all the time something. And this is so important to note because it helps us begin to realize a very valuable thing when it comes to idolatry. That we are these things that reflect all kinds of stuff. Notice how scripture puts it. It says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. He's saying, watch who you're hanging around. Watch how you're hanging out with people. Because if you're hanging out with wise people, they'll make you wise. If you're hanging out with others, they'll conform you to foolishness. That's why we always ask you, well, who are you hanging out with? What is your community like? Who are the people that are surrounding you the most? Because they're influencing you. You've picked up idiosyncrasies from your work, from the people you work with. Maybe words you otherwise wouldn't have used. Behaviors and ways you wouldn't have acted. Your family's influenced you. And a lot of times, young married people in the room, your families have so influenced you. When you come together, you have to almost abandon those things and go through really difficult stuff to have a new family emerge. And we don't get that because we're, we're conforming and we shape around what we reflect. And so we're in this situation where we are mirrors. We are not flashlights, but we'd love to be. We'd love to have everybody reflect us. You know, everybody be like me. Everybody, but all we're doing is reflecting our culture, reflecting something else. And so what we reflect the most then is important to note. You reflect what you love. The people that you love, the things that you love is what you reflect the most. You hang out around those things the most and you spend the most time with those things that you love. And therefore, oftentimes, what we love the most is what we worship. And so what we worship is what we mirror. When you love something, you worship it. That's why when we love an idol, when we care about an idol, we, we actually are going to conform to it. We're going to shape, be are shaped into it. And that's because you and I love it so much. We're around it so much. We're reflecting it. And what we love, we worship. You say, no, I don't. I worship God. I come on Sundays. I sing songs to God. I listen to his word. I listen to podcasts during the week. I, I love God. I love him first. And yet, some of us in this room may actually be wrestling. What if God took away your job? Just decimated your life. Where you were not successful, where you were struggling for money, would you curse God? Would you suddenly be angry at him and say, I deserve better than this? If he took your spouse from you, or your children in a car accident. Are, what, what is the line that God could put you through that you would abandon him? That'll tell you whether you worship God or whether you worship an idol. Because an idol, if you lost it, would devastate you more. And you'd be angry with God. And you'd push God out because you had him above. He didn't have a right to touch that. You, that's your thing. What we love is what we worship. And what we worship is what we mirror. In fact, in Psalm 115, it lays it out this way. There are, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. This uh, psalm is describing the actual idols of the ancient world, statues that they would have and they would worship. And so as he's going through this, he says, they have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but they do not smell. They have hands but they do not feel. Feet but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. These things are inanimate things. In fact, another psalm ends there with this same phraseology. It goes on to say, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Another psalm puts it this way. All who worship them will become like them. They will become utterly worthless. 
And the reality of a worthlessness is because the empty promises that an idol will give you, it'll prop you up, it'll tell you you'll be wealthy, it'll show you you get this stuff, only to abandon you in the moment of your greatest need. Only to show you that it was all an illusion, it's made you greedy. To give you success, but to be a failure in all the other parts of your life except the one thing you were seeking success in. And so we become like them. It conforms us, it shapes us, it changes us. But again, some of us are going, I don't worship these things. I'm not singing songs to my idols, to, these, these, to success, to, to, I'm not singing songs to these various things, because that's what we think worship is in, in our current culture. We think worship is gathering in a room and all of, us, all of us singing a song, but that's not what worship was. Worship looked radically different in the Old Testament. If you want to know what worship looked like in a biblical context for the Old Testament, it would have looked like this. They went out to their flocks, found Fluffy, the small little beautiful lamb they'd been bringing, put a little string on it, carried it all the way to the temple, and then in, in worship, they slit its throat and poured blood out on the ground. Aren't you glad we sing songs? <laughs> worship looked radically different because it was a different aspect of worship that they were in, emphasizing in the, in the Old Testament. But worship is really defined in three kind of terms. It's, worship is delighting in, singing songs about, delighting in serving and devoting or offering up something. So the Old Testament was very much in this devotion, obedience stuff where they would come and offer their offerings. They would be devoted and pour out something. They would take their animal and put it down. Um, we do this form, and, and it's all part of this. It's part of why we do offering in services. Is it's because it's part of our action of saying, God, I give over to you a portion of my life. I'm showing that you are what I give to. And so there's this reality of delighting and serving and devoting. And so if you look at our culture, you'll see we actually do this. We do this. In fact, God warned us not to. He said, you, when he says, don't make idols, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So there's devoting. Bowing down is literally bringing something and laying it at their feet by kneeling. Serving them. There's the obedience, the serving other people. Don't, don't, don't do what they tell you to do. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation to those who what? Say it. Hate me. Why does God equate worshiping an idol to us hating him? There's a sense that he sees this as a, a delight relationship, a devotion relationship. Of a, of a sense that we should delight in God. In fact, when we don't delight in him, he views it as us hating him. And so these three aspects are in worship. And this is one of the Ten Commandments. And he's saying, listen, you and I should worship God and worship him alone. But we don't do that. And in fact, we actually do sing about our idols, don't we? Think about it for a second. Do we sing about success? We are the champions, my friends. Right? We're singing about our success. Money, 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 money. We're like, yeah. We like songs about money. We sing about money. We totally sing about sex. I don't even need to go into that. I mean, come on. We sing about love relationships, and Taylor Swift is the songstress of every horrible relationship you can get into, and that's the reality of how this stuff works. Miley Cyrus is the worship of freedom in the, in, the, in, the, in the lack of morals and everything else. Everybody sings about their idols, don't get me wrong. Even, even the older crowd, I gotta be me, I gotta be me. You know, we even sing about it then. 
Guys, we have always sang about our idols. We have always worshiped with song in our society. So let's not fool ourselves that it's weird for us to come in and sing about Jesus. I think it's kind of weird to sing about money, about success. That sounds weird because what has it really given us? Yet what we're doing is we're delighting in these idols. We're giving our hearts over to them. We see people serving them. You get caught up when you're obeying money. And what happens is you put money in front and you start to mirror this money and it turns into greed. And suddenly the greed in your heart wants more. You, can't, you don't have everything you want yet but, and you're worried you might lose some of the money. So I got to get more. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. And so when it calls, you'll actually violate your morals in order to just get a little bit more. You'll obey it. You'll serve it. You'll memorize its rules of economics and everything else, even though they may not be right or not right. You'll put them in your political ideology. You'll do whatever you can to serve it. If you're into success, you'll be serving success. You'll be after success. You'll pour your time into it. You'll spend your money to it, which means you're devoting things to it. You're offering it up. How many of us have offered up our families to our idols? How many of us have offered up lots of money for our idols. We'll even offer up our reputations as we've seen with so many of these recent catastrophes in the pulpits for people. Guys, the reality is horrible and it's frightening, but this is what idolatry does. It requires you to delight in it, to serve and devote yourself to these things. And as we look at this, as we watch this, we got to examine, I'll give you a simple example for me, and that's been in my wrestling match with success. Um, part of my family growing up, and I think I've referenced this in the past, I've been talking to the staff about this and stuff, but in the, over my sabbatical, it was really unearthed that my, my family I grew up in really focused on success as the way of measurement. It was the way to show that you actually could be somebody. And, and, and so I used it as a way of kind of offsetting when people would put me down, push me down or whatever. And so I would spend hours studying or writing stories or doing stuff because I wanted to be successful. Big dreams of being successful. Going to do these great big deals. I would talk that way. And so slowly I had accomplished some successful things in my life and, and then some things. And here's when I realized it was an idol. I would delight in them. Now, I didn't sing songs about it. I wasn't running around going, I am the champion, my friends. No, that's not what I was doing. But what I was doing is honestly I would... I would tell people, I would rehearse them. I'd say, yeah, you know, I got this. I won this award. I did this thing. And I would just kind of go through this rehearsal of the things that I had done, hoping that maybe they'd see my value inside the whole time, delighting in my accomplishments and successes, worshiping them, worshiping them in my heart. And some of us do the same things. You delight over telling the stories about your children, how successful they are, how amazing they are. But it's not really about your kids. It's really about you, about you feeling really good about yourself. It's another conquest. It's you obeying that sexual urge and, and clicking one more time onto the pornography or hunting out another guy who's going to check you out at the bar or the dance club because you're dressed to the nines to get attention. And it's that delight that you receive in those things that keeps you coming back. It's that delight in those things that keeps motivating you. And every idol will give you a delight. 
It's, oh, it's short. It's small. And it won't last long. It always comes back with guilt later. But it starts there. And eventually you have to serve it when its urge comes, when it tells you to do something. Success would say, do this. And I would be out there spending hours and hours throwing the discus, throwing the discus, throwing the discus. Even though I was already the best guy on my team, I needed to be the best in the league. And I wanted to make sure I was the best in CIF, all this stuff just to do it. Throwing and throwing and throwing. I can't, I don't throw the discus anymore. I wasted hours of my life throwing a discus. Now I just throw my arm out. You know, that's all that pretty much happens. And the reality is that success had called me to obey it. And when you start obeying, other things fall off. And you start being successful in one particular area, but other things go away. And so I sacrificed family. Sacrificed time. Guys, the reality is that this stuff is worship. Most of what we do in life is worship. Worship of some form of idolatry. Something to keep us going. The question I simply am asking is, what have you put in front of yourself? What are you spending the most time in front of? Because you're starting to reflect it. It'll start to bounce off of you. It'll start to come out. Money to greed. Sex to lust. Image to vanity. Every sin that we can note is a reflection of some idol that we want. And some promise that we're seeking for. And the horror is it makes you look less and less human. Because we're not made to reflect anything but the God of the universe who created all this stuff. Who made everything. And he, he leaned down to make you and me in his image. And he said, you want to be human? You want to be rightly human? Put me in front of you. Set me in front of you. This God who is infinitely incredible, highly successful, has everything at his fingertips, invented sexuality, is called the beauty in the scriptures. I mean, he's worshiped and can handle it and isn't overblown in his head. I mean, this God is incredible. He says, you want to know what you guys are worthy of, of imaging? Me. That's it. Don't image anything else. Image me. Put me in front of you and reflect me. And so that's the solution to all the idolatries. We have to worship God, the God of the Bible to be right. To make your life right, to fix these weird things that are broken, it's because of the idolatries, you must become so devoted to the worship of your God. And so we're going to open up services every day to sing. No, that's not the point. The point is we worship not in song, but in life. First, I want to point out some, one of the worships, right? We must delight in the true God more. What do I mean by that? Guys, we can say we worship God. We can say we get connected with God. We can say we, we love God. But what God do you love? Honestly. Do you have the right God? Because there's a lot of versions of God out there right now. In fact, the word God itself doesn't mean a whole lot in the United States anymore. Even the name Jesus Christ can be confusing. The only anchor we have to the reality of who God is, is his word. Otherwise, you may end up with the modern version of God, which is a lot of people have labeled therapeutic moral deism. How do you like that for big words? Therapeutic moral deism. Let me unpack that for you for a second. Therapeutic, God cares about your feelings. He wants you to be happy. If you're stressed, he doesn't want you to be stressed. If you have anxiety and, and you have this, this desire for something, he wants you to have it because he just wants you to be happy. He's, he's your counselor. 
before he's anything else, therapeutic, moral. Hey, if you're a good person, he's cool with that. It's like Grandpa God, right? You know who Grandpa God is? Grandpa God sits up there and goes, oh, there's some bad things going on with the kids. Somebody's going to get that? Cute kids. <laughs> hey, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Well, you going to do something about it? I'm a grandpa. I don't do anything about that. That's your parents' job, Grandpa God. Just kind of leaves it alone. Says it's wrong, just watches it. Maybe I got the wrong grandpas, but that's kind of how it's like the idea here. Some of us are Santa Claus God. Ho, 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 I give gifts all the time. Ho, ho, ho. You're naughty, you're nice, but I give you a gift. Anyway, we, I gave up the little coal in the stocking thing a long time ago. Some of us have cop God. Boom! You just did this wrong, I'm going to write you up for that. That's 3,000 years in hell. Four more years in purgatory. There you go. Have a nice day. Boom! You just thought a bad thought about me while I wrote that out. I gotta give you more. I mean, God's on you like this. He's just constantly nailing you for every evil, and you're just you just clammed up. And the, you can't go to church because he's gonna drop the ceiling in on you because he just can't stand you. We have a lot of versions of God out there. None of them, none of them really match the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is so much bigger. When's the last time you contemplated the Trinity? I'm really thought about it. Let it blow your mind. Some of you guys are like, what's the Trinity? That the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three persons and one God, and that in that then means that God is at his core nature relationship. Why focus on community as a church? Because God is community. As a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity, he, is, he put it this way, God is love, it says in 1 John. The nature of his relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is love. It's why God's not overblown in his head. Because he worships the Son and the Son worships the Father. The Father worships the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit worships them back. And there's this love, amazing love relationship flowing forever and ever. And that'll blow your mind. Because what do we have? We have the Holy Spirit who is in this love relationship and we've been brought up into it. And the son gave his life for us because the father wanted him to. God loves us like that. This love relationship is being poured out onto his people. God knows everything. Everything knows all your sins you will commit, knows what you will be like for eternity, every action you will do, every action you will, every choice you will make. He knows you perfectly. He knew you before you were born. And he loved you to give you his son. Even though he knew all the sins you'd ever commit. And on the cross, he didn't just take your sins you have committed so far. He took all of them. The whole sum of your life in sin. And he put that on the cross. He is going to be able to, he's all powerful. He'll take all the mess of this world and he's going to sum it up and he's going to make it right and he's going to bring every bit to righteousness because God is just. He will judge every evil, every mistake, everything. Not too much, he won't overwhelm it. Not too little, he won't underdo it. He'll do it, nail it exactly right every instance, every time. That'll give you comfort next time you're robbed. That'll give you comfort when you realize that there are people in this world who've never heard about Jesus, yet God is just and merciful. He knows exactly how to deal with this. The beauty of what you and I have when we contemplate God is it, it does something to you. You get pumped up. I remember sitting in my theology class. You guys met Dr. Tonis this summer. Eric Tonis was here as one of our guest speakers. And I'm sitting there. It's his first year at Biola. And I'm going, what's this guy going to be like? New guy. I heard he's interesting. And, uh, you know, you expect, what do you expect in, in theology class? You expect, 
Would you please open your Bible up? We're going to speak about the Trinity. The Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All points one. You know, you expect like... No, this guy goes, do you get the Trinity? I mean, God is incredible. And you're just like going, what in the world just happened in this theology class? And he would just build and build and build on this one theological idea. So you're at the end of class going, I got to do something. Then we'd sing a hymn. And the whole class is singing their guts out because you're so excited about who God is and what he has done and how he's designed things. You can't help but sing. You can't help but delight in God because you know him. When's the last time your heart was stirred with the delight of your God? Because you've got time to know him. Del- The blessed man, says in Psalm 1, his delight is in the law of the Lord. In the word, on it, he meditates day and night. And the result of that is he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. Guys, I'll tell you, this is so true. Just the theology in my life that I've received, just the time spent in contemplating who God is and what he's like, in the seasons that have come in my life, when my mom died of cancer, as much as everyone loved on me and cared about me and my family, it was incredible and you let that in. It was something odd for me. It was the knowledge that my God had made everything right by bringing my mom into eternity, making her right, having died for her sins, that made all the tensions go away in my life. I could remember her. I could rejoice over what God was doing, knowing that there was a future where I would be with her again, ease the suffering and the pain. I wasn't, I wasn't mourning in the same manner. And I'll tell you what, time after time after time, when you go through suffering, if you know who God is, there's something about knowing your God that changes the way you go through the season and you're still fruitful. He yields his fruit in season. Your leaf doesn't wither and all you do, you'll prosper. Isn't that what they promise? Isn't that what the idols promise? Hey, Come after me and I'll give you what you want. Come after me and I'll make your life prosper. But it's only God. When you put God in front of you and you reflect him, your life begins to prosper in a way that you never expected. You produce love and joy and peace. Now, just stop there. Wouldn't that be a great package? I mean, how many of us don't want love in our lives? To be loved and to be able to love rightly. No parent in this room likes when they get so mad at their kids they feel like they're not showing love. We want to love and be loved. We would love joy. And we do all kinds of entertainments just to make ourselves feel good. But deep, satisfying joy in which it just doesn't move. You just, it's just there. Peace. Enough said, right? Amen? Just those three along with the rest of them. That's a life that's prospering in all of its areas. And so the next part is then we must offer our desires to God. Trusting him to meet them. Yes, we can delight in him. But next, let's, let's devote. Let's offer up our desires to God. You know, we've, we've sought our desires with idols. It's not working. It's time to offer up our delights to God. And Psalm 37, 4 puts it this way. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I want to note that this is not like a direct promise in the sense of like, if my child delights himself in the Lord, that he will get a, a you know, a Nintendo Wii at, for Christmas. That's not that kind of a reality. Although we would love it. Like, I delight in you, God. Give me a Ferrari. It'd be awesome. You know, kind of thing. The reality is that when we delight ourselves in the Lord, something changes. Culture desires. 
What you long for and what you hope for and what you desire will be radically altered. You will go from wanting the American dream to wanting to see the kingdom of God flourish. You will go from being a consumer of church to being a participant because you desire to delight God. And suddenly you'll find that he's giving you the very desires of your heart as you're serving these little kids. As you're making a handshake and a hug. As you're handing out some, a cup of coffee. And you walk away more satisfied about it than anything else in your life. And there's something about God bringing that in. And our desires need to be brought to God because they're powerful. James talks about our desires. He actually tells us that sin and temptation comes from when our desires entice us and lure us into satisfying them. And when it's conceived in us, it gives birth to sin. And when sin has had its full measure, it leads to death. So your desires are the very birthplace of temptation and sin. And if we have these desires, that's what's led us to idols. I want to be successful. I want to be amazingly intelligent or whatever it is that you have for you. Um, obviously, those are my problems. That's what I would love to be. But those don't matter in comparison to what God is doing. And I bring my desires to him and he says, you really don't need that. You really don't need that. This is what you've really been asking for. You don't think God really knows what you need? What you really want? What would actually satisfy your soul? We're all afraid he's going to send us to another country. Not, not all of us. There's a few of us in here that are begging God to send us to another country. But now some of us, that's like the death knell of the Christian life. I, I promise you, if he's sending you to another country, it will, it will be the desire of your heart. It will satisfy you. And some of you aren't being sent because he knows it would not satisfy you. He sent out their miserable missionary. Like, here, God sent me to this people and we want to learn this language. And they're like, hey, who's Jesus? You don't want to know who Jesus is. It's like the Jonah of missionaries. You don't want to be that. <laughs> well, how do we give our desires over to God? You give them over by Luke. Luke tells us like this in prayer. Jesus is speaking. He says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. How many of us are actually asking for our desires? Or are you afraid? Somehow you've been told back there, you know, you don't go to God like a vending machine. And that's true. You don't go to God like a vending machine. But that doesn't mean you don't go as a child. Anybody have children? Raise your hand. You got children. Then you have been asked for everything probably at this point. Isn't that true? Children don't stop asking. My 11-year-old still walks up to me and goes, can I have a glass of water? I'm like, yes, you can have a glass of water. Well, you want me to get it for you? Go get it. You're 11. And it's the reality that children, they get into the habit, they trust that daddy or mommy can get it for me. No matter how many times you say no, they don't stop asking either. Can I play Minecraft? No. Can I play Minecraft? No. Can I play Minecraft? No. As if somehow asking it multiple times, and then they go to mom, right? Mom, can I play Minecraft? <laughs> you know, it's... it's Children are excellent at asking. Guys, when did we stop learning to ask like children? Ask God for the desires of your heart. Seek that he's going to answer them. Knock when the answer comes. Because it's true. The, the part that's really important to me is this. If you then who are evil parents know how to give good gifts to your children, that's what Jesus is saying. Thanks, Jesus. Um, 
How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The greatest gift you can receive is the Holy Spirit because He brings all of those fruits into your life. And He brings all the other things. He shapes and changes your desires so He actually gives you what you desire. And, and so what He's saying is, how much more will He give you good gifts? That's how it says it in Matthew. If God is your good Father, He loves and delights in giving us the desires of our hearts. Are we bringing those to Him? Finally, then, it leads to us simply this. Are we willing, then, to serve God in our obedience? We're going to expound on these next week a little bit more. But are we willing to serve our God through obedience? Let me put it this way. Imagine my house. And I'm sure your house is similar. Your children have been home for five minutes after school, and now they've been upstairs playing. 30 minutes go by, you go upstairs, and their rooms are what? A mess. Okay, good. We're all in the same house. And it's a mess, and the kids have been playing, and things aren't put away, and they come downstairs, and they're hungry and disheveled, and the boys have been wrestling, and all this stuff, and you're like, okay. So you go upstairs, and, you ha- and what are you going to tell them now? You go, listen, before you can have anything to eat, you need to go clean up your room. See, we can imagine that this scenario happens. My daughter goes upstairs to go clean up her room, walks into her room, 10 minutes rolls by, comes downstairs, and says, Dad, I said, did you clean your room? She goes, well, I want to talk to you about that. Okay, I think it's a very good command. I think it is, I've been looking at my room, it is messy, it is a good command for you to tell me to clean up my room. To clean up my room means that that it would be put together. And to clean up my room means it would be my responsibility for my room, and it's the place that I dwell in, so it should be mine to clean up. I've really thought about this a lot. Thank you, Adeline. Go clean up your room. She goes upstairs. Okay. Comes da- downstairs and says, Dad, Dad. I'm like, okay, is your room clean? Well, I've been, I've been meditating on the idea of cleaning my room. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I've been thinking about it. I've been saying it over and over in my head. Just, just, just dwelling on it and mulling it over. And it's seated into my heart. I'm so ready for action. In fact, I wrote a song about cleaning up my room. <laughs> my dad is so good. He told me to clean up my room. I love you, Dad. Thank you for telling me to clean up my room. Go clean up your room. She goes upstairs, comes back downstairs. Dad, you'll be so proud of me. You cleaned your room? No, I brought the boys in. I taught them how to clean up their room. I gave them three points, applications, and a poem. It was, guys, do you ever realize maybe what we do as Christians is just a farce? That God has told us what to do, and we'd rather talk about what to do than to go out and reach people for Christ. We'd rather meditate and write tons and tons of tomes about how we're supposed to love our neighbor rather than go next door and actually meet our neighbor and love them. And maybe all it is that we're missing in our worship to break idols is just to do one simple thing, to obey. Maybe it's time not to obey to get into heaven, but to realize obedience is part of our worship. And it's an opportunity to say, Dad, I love you so much. I cleaned up your room and you didn't even, I didn't clean up my room and didn't even have to ask me. That's how motivated I am. Guys, wouldn't that be awesome? What would a church do if we were just so simple to obey just a little bit that we knew? Delight in our God and continue to devote the things that we have to Him. You would see the idols fall away. We're going to expound on that more next week, but would you bow your heads with me?
you know, you may be in here and you're realizing, wow, I got some stuff to think about. That you do have some idols that you've been delighting in, you've been devoted to. I want to invite you as Christians this morning to let those go and, and turn to God and just say, God, help me out. I want to worship you more. But then there are others of you in this room who may not actually have a vibrant knowledge of God or are Christians. You thought you knew who God was, but you realize, hey, it's, it's this other version and you've got these idols. And I want to invite you to think about something for a second. That if you do put these idols in front of your life, that they may be part of the reason why things are just falling apart for you. Even trying to be like something that you're not made to be like. And that God made you to be like him. He made you to image him. But there's a problem because you can't put God in front of your life and just magically have it change. Sin is between you and that picture, that image. Sin stops the reflection of God from him. It's like you have to have the entire mirror replaced. You can't go clean it off with a bunch of good works. That doesn't work. Sin has marred and scratched the mirror up. And God one day will have to come and judge us for that sin on the day of judgment. And the answer to every judgment is, is ultimately the inevitable guilty. And we will be cast into hell to pay for, that, pay for those sins. But God knew this. And so he went out to, to tell you something. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and raise from the dead so that you would hear clearly that God loves you. He does not want you to go to hell. He wants to replace that mirror by you giving it over to him, giving your sin to him. He will take it and put it on Jesus on the cross. And if you will trust that Jesus Christ bore your sins on the cross, you'll be forgiven and your relationship with God will be made right. And then you can image him. And you can walk with him. But you got to deal with the sin before you can do anything else. Maybe right now God's telling you, you need to deal with the sin. I want you to have a relationship with me. So come, get rid of it, be forgiven. If that's you, and you're ready to receive the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, I want to give you that chance. Just put your hand up and you're saying, that's me. I am ready right now. As you put that hand up, I want to lead you through a prayer. right where you're at in your seat. Start with confessing to God the things that you've done wrong. And as you do that, you're going to do the next thing. You imagine that's like a list and you're turning away from that list and you turn to God and you look at him and you ask him to take that list and put it on Jesus. Let him know that you trust that Jesus has taken your sins and forgiven you. Now ask him to come into your life and to lead you through the rest of it. Every season that's coming hard and good that you could image him. And God, for anyone who has been praying or is praying that prayer right now, I ask that you'd bless them, give them assurance that they are with you and walking with you and that you've forgiven them. And help us all, Lord, to walk in worship of what you've given to everyone in this room. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.